Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us, again, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. Have you ever heard of a name, and then once you met the person, or went to the place, or, or whatever the event was, you thought to yourself, that wasn't at all what I was expecting. That name really misled me. You know, Johnny Cash in 1969, February of 1969, released one of his greatest hits. And it was about a man that believed that his name didn't rightly represent who he was. When his father left home, he said the meanest thing his father ever did to him was he left home naming him Sue. And he vowed and declared that for the rest of his life, he would track down his father and he would get back at him for naming him Sue. Now, when I think about the minor prophets, I can't help but think about that's a little bit misleading. You know, oftentimes when you talk with individuals that don't really know a lot about the Bible and you mention the minor prophets, there's that bewildered look. Why would we call them minor? Now, keep in mind, the Bible itself doesn't call them the minor prophets. That didn't take place until Augustine in the 4th century. It's a term that, that man gave in, to refer to the fact that the writings of those 12 prophets were much smaller, much more condensed than what we sometimes call the major prophets. But please understand, their work was not any less important, less significant, uh, less a cause of a, a contribution that was a powerful effect to the kingdom of heaven. It's simply the fact that what is recorded about them is much shorter now, as we consider this, I'd like for you to notice that in our Bible, in the chronological order, you see there on the screen, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, etc., listing the twelve. The Hebrew did not call them the minor prophets. The Hebrews would call them the twelve. Really, probably a much better representation of what is actually there. These are twelve prophets that... Their work was very significant, and as they recorded, it was much shorter than maybe Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or Daniel, who we sometimes refer to as the major prophets. But as you look at this next screen, I'd like for you to notice that if these were placed in chronological order in our English Bible, we would see that these 12, which, by the way, just for what it's worth sake, in the Hebrew Bible, all of these were one book. And, and so in, instead of having 39 books of the Old Testament, there's about 24 books of the Old Testament. And, all, and that's why they were simply called the 12. It was one writing about all 12 of these. Now, if we were to place them in chronological order, you see that the writing begins then with Jonah, Amos, and Hosea. And notice that can fall under one category. And remember, the, we read earlier in the year, and by the way, the reason we're studying this today is many of you know this is what we're reading right now in our daily Bible readings. And, and if you kind of have fallen off the wagon, that's all right. Get back on the wagon this week. And for the rest of the year, you can read 12 books. Uh, really, if you jumped on right now, you'd read a, at least 10 books, and, and you would read the last part of the Old Testament, the Minor Prophets. And as we see here, you remember earlier in the year we read that there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Now, when we look at the writings of the northern kingdom, we see that these three individuals wrote and spoke. Their ministry, their prophecy was primarily to the northern kingdom. Now, the next three that you see, or the next six that you see listed on your screen from Obadiah down to Zephaniah, those would be the ones that prophesied primarily to Judah. 
And then the final three closing out the Old Testament, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, those three would prophesy once the children of Israel could return back from Babylonian captivity, the exile, they came back. Those were the three that would prophesy to that group as they returned. Now, again, just a note of interest. As you see the column out to the right there, you see the number of chapters. Isn't it interesting that each of those three major divides have a very similar number of chapters recording it? Now, with this in mind, this morning, I would like for us to spend a little time looking at Jonah and Amos and Hosea, the northern kingdom, Israel. These are the prophets that were recorded in and about the work there. And as we do this, I'd like for us to turn and just read some various passages from these and then give a slight overview of the book, but then just draw at least one major theme from each of these that might help us. So if you would be turning your Bible to Jonah, the book of Jonah, and if you have your pew Bible there, the Bible that's in front of you in the back of the pew in front of you, it's on about a 815 or 816. And notice as we begin studying Jonah, here we think about Jonah and we think about a prophet who had a broken ministry. Oftentimes, if you grew up going to Bible class, out of all of the prophets of these last 12 of the Old Testament, this would be the one that someone would say, now I've heard of him, I know him. Because in Bible class, we esteem him as a type of hero that was able to be thrown overboard. God prepared the fish, swallowed him up, and he lived in the belly of that fish for three days. And it was there that he was praying to God. Now, as we get older, we read these four chapters in depth and it's a little bit disappointing because we realize out of all the minor prophets, he probably is one of the most disappointing. You see, he struggled as a man, as a man after a God, as a prophet. I'm not saying that any of us here are better than him. I'm simply saying that the Scriptures reveals his weakness and pretty much only his weakness except for that time that he did humble himself in prayer in the second chapter. If you will look with me to the first chapter and you see in verse 2 what God tells him to do. God tells Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. And so here was this great city that was connected, of course, to Assyria. That was the enemy of these people. And so now, here is this man that is an Israelite, a prophet of God, and God is telling him, I want you to go and I want you to preach repentance to these people whom you deem to be your enemy. And if we fast-forwarded time, of course, us looking back, we know his future and He had reason, if you will, from a fleshly nature to hate them because they would be the one that would destroy his people. Now, with with this in mind, think about what is he going to do? Some would say he's in a dilemma. Is he going to go northeast? And if you will, look at the map here. And and when I look at this map, it really seems to uh, just clarify how blatant His disobedience was. God wanted him to go northeast, go over to Nineveh. He was probably just a little bit north of Joppa where he lived at that time. We're not exactly for certain where he was when he received this message, but probably north of Joppa there. He should have been going northeast, but instead he went south to Joppa to catch a boat that would take him due west to Tarshish. Friends, it was just as if him saying, No, God, I won't go. 
it wasn't only that. It was God, not only will I not go, I'm going to go in the opposite direction of what you have asked me to do. Now, we see that he is thrown overboard and in the second chapter of the book of Jonah, you see that he begins a prayer. Verse 1, then Jonah prayed. And he becomes very humble at this time. And he closes out his prayer at the end of verse 9. Salvation is of the Lord. Verse 10 tells us that he's vomited up out of this fish upon dry land and he's ready to go to Nineveh and he preaches the gospel to the people at Nineveh. They repent and they turn away and God decides to spare them. But notice as we go to the fourth chapter, this man becomes so angry because God spared the people. Do you see a theme here in the book of Jonah? God was telling the Israelites, I love Gentiles too. The book of Jonah teaches us that God has always loved all people. The idea that God has always wanted all mankind to be saved is not a New Testament principle that's introduced there. God has always wanted mankind to be saved. Now, Jonah is not so comfortable with this. As a matter of fact, here in the fourth chapter, he begins to complain. He begins to wish that he was dead. And he even says in the middle of verse 4, I say, I'm sorry, the fourth chapter, the middle of verse 2, I said when I was still in my country, therefore I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents from doing harm. You see what Jonah, put, put this on a timeline. Remember he was in his country and God told him to go and he said, I didn't want to go. So he ran down south and then he went west. And then finally in the belly of the fish, he humbles himself. He's vomited up on dry land. Okay, God, I'll go. And he goes and he preaches and the people repent. And so you think the prophet's going to say, ah, success. I told the people to repent and they repented. No, they repented and he comes back and he says, I knew it. I knew it back here when I was in my country before I ever left to run away. In other words, he's saying the reason I ran away I knew what God was going to do. He's a gracious God. He's a merciful God. I knew that if I told the people to repent of Nineveh and they repented, God wasn't going to destroy them. In other words, he was saying, I, I can't believe these people are given the grace of God. I wanted them to be destroyed. Now, without going into the details of the fourth chapter, notice the summary. At the very end, this is God's message to him in verse 11. God says to him, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand. If he, in fact, is talking about here infants so young, children that do not know the difference in their right and left hand, many have calculated there's probably at least five times the population there. And so the Lord is looking to Jonah and he says, okay, we have over half a million people in this city of Nineveh and you want me to not have pity on them? God has always loved every soul. And so the question that I need to ask myself is when God tells me to go, where do I go? When God wants to send me, 
Do I go the direction he says or do I go the other direction? You see, the answer to this is going to come down to two things. Do I love souls? And do I love God? That's the beginning story of what we call the minor prophets. Go with me, if you will, to the book of Amos. That's just back two books in your Bible. If you're open to Jonah, just go back two books and you'll be back to the book of Amos. As you're going back, that's along page 810 or so in in your Bible where we'll be looking. And as you go there, I want to remind you of who Amos is. Amos was from the southern kingdom. He was a farmer. He was one that made his living with goats and sheep and even raising figs. But God sent this southern farmer to the north. And he had a very strong and stern message that he was to preach to the northern kingdom. Now you need to understand to properly appreciate this. The northern kingdom was faring very well then. Many were doing well financially. Many were living a life of fulfilling the flesh. And so therefore, we're going sometime when we go door knocking into neighborhoods, we'll say, you know, I really don't like going into the affluent neighborhoods because those people believe that they have everything. They don't need God. Well, can you imagine? That's what Amos was dealing with. Some have said that the reason he took the country boy there out of the wilderness is because he'd grown up tough. And he was going to be able to to carry through with a hard ministry because he wasn't going to be appreciated. He wasn't going to be accepted. And it was going to have to be somebody that had a thick skin to him, someone that had a, a, a toughness, if you will, to his core that could go on even when he didn't see favorable results and even when what he was saying wasn't appreciated. So this is the prophet that we could say was the prophet that went to the people of a broken law. Well, what was he going to say to them? In this book, there's a reoccurring theme, at least four, if you will, reoccurring themes. And I'd like to mention them to you and then show you just a few of them. One is identifying the people's sin. The second would be the coming judgment of Jesus. In other words, your sin may not look so serious to you unless you stop and recognize the fact Jesus is coming again and there's going to be a judgment. And then third, we need a standard by which to live, to lift ourselves out of this sin. And that is we need to see the righteousness and the holiness of God. And then finally, we can't lift ourselves alone. We need someone to deliver us. And that's the beautiful thing about the prophets. The prophets continue to remind the people God can deliver you. God can take care of you. Look, if you will, in the fourth chapter. Amos, the fourth chapter. This is just one example that occurs many times even in this same book. We see in verse 1, Hear the word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria. All right, the cows here, this, this area of Samaria was known for its most fertile pasture. And so the idea here was that if you wanted to talk about livestock that had a healthy coat and was fat and, and looking very, very uh, strong and healthy, these would be the, the, the cows of, of Bashan. And so he is talking about the people and he says, that's who you've become. You've become these people that are, are so strong physically. You're, you're so wealthy uh, symbolically, your coat is shining. But notice what they're doing as we read the rest of verse 1. Who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring wine, let us drink. So here are the people that had a lot. Where did you get what you have? Oh, we took advantage of the poor. 
Here's the people that should have been generous. Were they generous? No. When we saw people who were needy, we crushed them and we finished them off. We destroyed them. Here people, instead of living a holy life, they were living on substance. Hey, husband, bring me some more wine. He's talking to the children of Israel. The children of Israel had become people that were merciless to others who were stingy and literally built their fortunes of taking advantage of the poor and who were much, much too involved in some of the substances of their day and, of course, has even continued to our day. And notice what the answer is in 2. Notice how we see the judgment and the holiness of God lifted up in 2. We see their sins. That was verse 1, their sins. Look at verse 2. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness, Behold, the day shall come upon you when He will take you away with fish hooks, your posterity with fish hooks, and will go out through broken walls, each one straight ahead of her, and you will be cast into harmony, says the Lord. You see, what he is prophesying here is he's prophesying the judgment of God, and before the eternal judgment is the physical judgment on earth. And that's where God says, listen, if you're going to live this type of life, I'm going to stop protecting you. And if I stop protecting you, Assyria is coming in. And you know those walls around you that you say are so strong and no enemy can get to you? Assyria is going to come through. They're going to tear gaps into that wall. They're going to put fish hooks, and and there is uh, pictures of how this looked where they would put a fish hook through the captive's lip. And they would literally have a chain or or a rope on that, and they would lead the captives back through the broken gaps in the wall, just as God prophesied. Look at your sins. Look at the judgment. But the answer, the answer, look at verse 12 of the fourth chapter. Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. You see, he's not writing this at this point to say, it's all over. No hope. He's writing this at this point. The prophet, Amos, the the southern country prophet has come north and he's given this tough message, but he's saying it's not too late. Prepare to meet God. Don't stay in the state you're in. Prepare to meet God. And notice as we skip down to the fifth chapter, look at that phrase in verse 4 where he says, For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. Oh, it could have been so much better for them, but yet they never would seek God and thus they were destroyed. Now, if you will, back up two more books in your Bible and, and we'll look at the final point this morning coming out of Hosea. As, as you're turning there, though, let me remind you of, of the application that we need to make in our lives here as we study this, and that is the simple question. And don't grab your song book. This isn't the invitation, but the plea that Amos was making to the people is prepare to meet God. And so as we, we think about Jonah and we think about God told him to go, and the question is when God tells us something, do we do it? And that brings us to the question of Amos. Are we prepared to meet God? Can we say we've surrendered our life to God in every way? Are we prepared to meet Him? Now, here's the good news. Maybe somebody here this morning says, You know, I used to be prepared to meet God, but I'm not anymore. I've slidden back. I've stopped being what I ought to be. The story of Hosea is one of the most beautiful stories of God's grace. It's not a beautiful story about our human race. 
But it's a beautiful story about God's grace. And look with me, if you will, as we look over in your pew Bible, it'll be 795, and we see the story of Hosea. Hosea is a prophet with a broken heart. And the reason we say that is not because he wasn't a good prophet, but God gave him not only a message, but God wanted to use his life as part of the message, and it no doubt broke his heart. Chapter 1, God gave him this command. The first chapter, verse 2. When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed a great harlotry by departing from the Lord. In other words, he's saying, Look, I'm going to let your life represent what Israel has been doing. Israel's been committing adultery against the Heavenly Father, spiritually. Hosea, I want you to go and I want you to take this wife and she has a reputation of being a harlot. I want you to marry her. And so that's what we see throughout the first chapter, but yet it's very sad as we go into the second chapter. Look at verse 2, what he tells his children uh, of this harlot. The second chapter, verse 2, bring charges against your mother. Bring charges for she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. Let her put away her harlotries from her sight and her adultery. Skip down to verse 5. For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has behaved shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool, my linen, my oil, and my drink. Do you see what she's done here? She has literally abandoned her husband to sell her body for bread, for linens, for what we call day-to-day necessities. But yet, the day comes that those lovers that purchase her no longer want her. She's just an object to them. And so we go to the third chapter, which is a very short chapter in the Bible. It's only five verses long. And notice what the Lord now commands. The Lord says to me, go again. Love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord of the children of Israel, who looked to other gods and who loved the raisin cakes, that's aphrodisiac, of the pagans. So I brought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley. And I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too will I be toward you. Isn't that an amazing story? Where God says, I want to make it real clear to the children of Israel what your sins have led you to become but I also want to make it real clear to the children of Israel by you looking at the life of Hosea of how much I love you. Friends, can you imagine Hosea going back after his wife had done those things and and then she's for sale as a bondservant that can't pay her debts and he says, I'll buy her back. Can you imagine if there was a crowd gathered around? Can you imagine how people begin to elbow each other? Look, that's Hosea. He's buying back Gomer. Can you believe that? All she's done, the embarrassment that she's brought to him, the pain that she's brought into his life, she doesn't deserve that. And God's saying, I want you to see grace. I want you to see mercy. I want you to see how even though, Israel, you've been backsliding, I want to draw you back. 
You know, Paul talked about running the Christian race. I want to ask you this morning, could you best be described as one who is running with God? Or would you best be described as a runaway bride? One who's running away from your groom, the Almighty God, Jesus Christ. Are you running away from Him or are you running toward Him? If you would, go to the last part of the book of Hosea. It's 14th chapter. We've had this capably read, but I want to just read this as we close, if you will. Because really, this in a sense sums up the theme of all three books that we've looked at and and so much of the heart of what God is trying to communicate to the people throughout all the prophets. And and again, I want to encourage you, if if you haven't been reading as much lately, why not go ahead and start back this week and and read these minor prophets and, and look for the message that is very similar to what we see here in the 14th chapter and let it be an encouragement and a challenge to us. God really does want us to live this faithful, godly life. And when we fall... God really wants to buy us back. Notice again, 14th chapter, verse 1. O Israel, return to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. It's always our sin that separates us from God. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to Him, take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifice of our lips. See how grace was an Old Testament theme as well as a New Testament theme? They knew that the only way that they could ever come back to God was because of God's grace. And so uh, Hosea is is presenting that. And notice the, the prophecy here as it refers to Assyria. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say any more to the work of our hands, you are of God's, for in you the faithfulness finds mercy. God says, verse 4, I'll heal their backsliding. I'll love them freely, for my anger has turned away from you. Now look again verse 9. Who is wise? Remember that phrase, who is wise? Let him understand these things who is prudent. Let him know them. Here's what the wise and the prudent know. For the ways of the Lord are right. The righteousness walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. This morning, are you walking the way of the wise? God says go. Do you love souls and love God enough to go? Do you love your own soul enough to go? God goes to a people that have broken His law. He says, look at your sins. But now lift your eyes and look to the standard of righteousness. God, why does it really matter? He says, lift your eyes even more and look to the judgment of God. Don't you know that we'll all stand before God? But then He takes us to the book of Hosea. Leads right up into the Assyrian captivity. And He says, listen... Don't you know, God wants you back. When most men would look at a a wife of harlotry and say, I'll never touch her again. God says, I want to forgive you. And I want to invite you home. There's nothing that's alive and powerful like the Word of God. This morning, Do you believe God's Word? Do you believe how much He loves you and how much He wants to forgive you and how much He wants you to come home? 
If you've never been baptized into Christ for mission sins, won't you do that this morning? If you have and you've strayed from Him, won't you come back? That's God's message from Old Testament to New Testament. Come back. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.